Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Transparency Project Radio on the Inside Lens Network, with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides and suspicious deaths. My name is Denny Griffin, and my co-host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Good morning, Delilah. Good morning, Denny. And just you know, just to throw a little plug out there for Inside Lens Network, we we have a lot of different shows that we broadcast, and so there's obviously something for everyone. But some of the podcasts on our network, um, we highlight criminal cases. Some some of them are still even open investigations. But just to let the audience know that our intent is to allow families to present information for consideration. Our podcasts and our hosts are in, we do not represent the guests we don't claim to solve cases nor do we wish to jeopardize any open investigations so our guests present their own information and while we might suggest resources and assistance we're not liable for what they do with it so and this show particularly i am thrilled how about you denny i am very excited and uh, uh let me just uh, open with this question. Is justice really blind, or can it be influenced by money and power? Do the rich and famous play by the same rules as the rest of us, or are they treated differently? Today, we'll talk about this important issue with renowned legal analyst Beth Karras. For two decades, Beth has offered insight, analysis, and on-the-spot reporting on legal stories from courthouses across the country. A decade ago, Larry King called her one of the best in the business. Over the years, numerous attorneys and journalists have expressed the same sentiment. Beth continues to distinguish herself from her colleagues because of her unique expertise, knowledge of the law and procedure drawn from her experience in the trenches as a trial attorney. It's no surprise that she is sought sought after analyst, especially when on location at high profile competitive stories. In 1994, Beth joined Court TV as it was celebrating its third year on the air. During her 19 years at Court TV, as an on-air correspondent, she covered many of the highest-profile cases, including Jody Arias, the Arizona woman convicted of murdering her ex-boyfriend, Casey Anthony, the Florida mother acquitted of murdering her toddler, Penn State's Jerry Sandusky, convicted of molesting 11 boys over a 15-year period, and Illinois Cap Drew Peterson, convicted of drowning his third wife. She also has covered the trials of Conrad Murray, the doctor convicted of manslaughter and the death of Michael Jackson, the, uh, Durham Ravi, the former Rutgers University student convicted of bias, intimidation, and invasion of privacy, 
when he set up a webcam to watch his roommate's sexual encounter with another man. O.J. Simpson, convicted of robbery in Nevada after he stole his own memorabilia from two men in the Las Vegas hotel. And Kobe Bryant, the basketball player accused of raping in a Colorado hotel. Beth has evolved into a multi-platform journalist. She's appeared as a legal expert on virtually every cable and news network program, including Nightline, Dateline, The Today Show, Good Morning America, The Early Show, CNN's AC360, Headline News, TMZ, Investigation Discovery, Dr. Oz, and Inside Edition. Most recently, she has appeared on ABC's special Truth and Lies, the Lacey Peterson murder, and on ID's special about John Benet Ramsey. Drew Peterson, Casey Anthony, Bill Cosby, Jody Arias, and Scott Peterson. She will appear on ID's upcoming series about Michael Peterson and Marsha Clark's new show on A&E during its episode about the Robert Blake case. In the fall of 2017, Beth was part of the documentary team under Academy Award-nominated filmmaker Joe Berlinger, producing a six-part series about the Jessica Chambers murders in 2014 in Mississippi. The series will air in the fall of 2018. Beth, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, and I'm glad to be here to talk to you two. Enough about me, though. Let's talk about the cases. We're ready. Go ahead, Beth. You kick it off. Well, you wanted to talk about, at least you suggested that we talk about high-profile cases and perhaps distinguishing those defendants who were celebrities before they ended up in a courtroom either as a victim or, or accuser or a defendant, and those who sort of became celebrities or at least they were high-profile as a result of their case. Uh, yesterday for my website, com, I blogged about the 25-year anniversary coming up of a case that falls in that latter category, and that's Lorena Bobbitt, who was not known to anyone but her circle of friends and family in 1993 when, after what she says was four years of physical and emotional abuse at the hands of her husband, four-year marriage, she cut off his penis threw it in a field. Uh, It was reattached, and he has full use now. They divorced, and they went on with their lives. This was two and a half decades ago, but her name became a household name as a result of her act. That was one of the earlier cases, even before I joined Court TV, uh, that, that, you know, in my lifetime, where I remember a person becoming a celebrity as a result of um, their act. Well, you don't always know which cases are going to become high profile, and maybe you can speak to that. And and I mean, of course, the case with Lorena Bobbitt, it had all the sizzle for right, media of what frenzy. She did. Right, right, right. Um, but maybe some of the other cases that that well, kind of took you by surprise. Well, first of all, you know, we used to have at Court TV a meeting once a week where we would, it was a tracking meeting, where we would discuss cases that were being tracked by our team of about five people whose full-time job was to track cases around the country. They divided it up into regions. And, of course, we had the Internet by then, but not initially uh, when Court TV started. So, you know, we were using stringers in the field. In any event, uh, we looked for cases that had interesting issues 
or maybe a flamboyant sort of popular lawyer in a particular community, maybe a lawyer of national fame. So it's at the parties, who the victim was, who the defendant was, what the issue was, where it took place, you know, if it was a Hollywood murder, what the crime was. And uh, we couldn't always predict. We would look at how much of the projected potential testimony was going to be expert testimony because we thought that we'd probably – put a lot of people to sleep watching a trial with a lot of expert testimony. But there were a few exceptions to that. Even when there was a lot of expert testimony, it was still riveting. Um, and by experts, you know what I mean. I mean, people who, I mean, we always had battles of the expert in the courtroom, people who uh, had some sort of area of expertise outside what people have in their normal, everyday, you know, knowledge of life. And these experts would come down on one side or the other. A person was legally insane at the time of the crime or knew what he or she was doing, and then the jurors had to decide who to believe, if either, of the experts. It, it was almost impossible to predict, unless you had a celebrity defendant or victim, almost impossible to predict what was become, going to become a big case. And I'll give you a couple examples. In, gosh, was it the late 90s? maybe around the turn of the century, uh, the late 90s, I'm not sure, can't remember exactly. I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts courthouse covering a trial, but we were also doing a second trial at the same time. That second trial catapulted to international profile while I was there, and I popped into it, and it was the case of Louise Woodward. She was a nanny accused of killing a child in her care, a child of two doctors um, in Boston. And the child had a cracked skull, or at least a significant bruise. I believe it was a cracked skull. It was believed that she dropped the child. And she was convicted of murder, but the judge changed the verdict to manslaughter, and she got time served. But in the few weeks I was at that courthouse covering a different trial, I I was shocked to see, you know, Nightline was showing up at all of the morning shows, and it just was gaining it was like snowballing every day because obviously a lot a lot of people have children people have nannies a lot of people could 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 relate and it was their worst nightmare the idea that something would happen at the hands of a nanny uh, an intentional or maybe such a grossly negligent act that it rose to the level of criminal conduct so that was one example of what we didn't um we didn't anticipate it was going to be such a big case. But then, you know, fast forward years later, after O.J. Simpson is tried and acquitted of double homicide, he continues to stay in the public eye, getting in trouble in Miami and then in Las Vegas. And we were, you know, I was in Vegas for that trial in 2008. He was arrested for hotel robbery and the year before, September 2007. We'd set up a major like, stage outside for the live shots and really expected people to come, Kent City, like outside the L.A. courthouse, and really nobody came until the verdict. Uh, so we thought it would be big because it was O.J., and by then people had O.J. fatigue, and they didn't care. Uh, Casey Anthony was another one. It started as a mom killing her child. We don't like to think about, you know, parents killing their children, but a lot of cases Court TV covered were husbands killing wives, wives killing husbands, mothers killing children. I mean, mean, those just happen to be the types of cases we ended up covering a lot of, or at least the ones that that really stick with me, the ones that were high profile. I mean, 
there's an endless list, it seems, of husbands killing their wives. Um, but Casey Anthony was yet another case of a mother with a, you know, a missing child, and, and she's eventually accused of murdering her child. And I think because Nancy Grace did about 300 shows in the three years before the case went to trial and labeled her top mom, that really uh, helped to catapult the case because it caught on and people were like, and people just got enraged year after year and she hadn't been tried yet. It was the 2008 disappearance of her daughter and arrest of Casey and then a 2011 trial. So there was well, a you know, lot of time for buildup. This this brings me to a question that I have for you and probably every other media person out there. What do you feel is the media's responsibility to the victims? We you know, all of these cases that you mentioned, we we know who the perpetrators are. We know uh, how they became so-called celebrities or famous, but we very often don't remember who the victims are. And especially well, in a I case don't... where there's multiple victims. Okay, so when you, you, your question has to do with media's responsibility. It's really, I mean, the media tells the story. And so when I'd be in the courtroom, I would describe and analyze what was happening in the courtroom. When I had the opportunity to speak to the family of a victim, and usually we're talking about a murdered victim, not always, but usually, um, I would ask them about their loved one because the trial was so impersonal. And I would say well, the only thing we know about your daughter or your son is, is what we know about from the autopsy or the circumstances of his or her death because that's what was admissible at the trial. The kind of person he or she was, you know, that's not, that's not for the trial. That's not for the guilt phase. That's for the sentencing or the penalty phase if it's a capital case. So I would try to draw that out and learn a little bit if they would talk during the trial or at least or after, it just out of respect for the victim to say, tell us, you know, what was he or she like. We, we would hear that at sentencing, but sometimes there was a big lapse between the, the, the trial and sentencing. So, and, but one thing the media does do for victim – victims of sex crimes, is uh, we, we don't air their names. I mean, gen, that's a self-censorship usually. Sometimes in courts, if there's a camera, the court will, by law, say you cannot air the victim's name. Um, but usually it's a self-censoring that the media will do when it comes to, you know, newspapers and other broadcasting outside the courtroom. And generally, rape victims are not... Uh, identified unless they agree to be identified, unless they want to go public with their story um, and, you know, and, and say it's okay to use their name and divulge their identity. Beth, if I may comment, uh, you mentioned the O.J. Simpson, the criminal trial of the double double homicide. Um, I was really into that. I mean, I was, uh, you know, wall to wall with it. And, uh they would even have replays uh, on TV at night, you know, what had transpired in the, in the courtroom during the day. And you mentioned uh, expert testimony. I was really into that until they got into the DNA. <laughs> and uh, you're 100% right. That became a snoozer for me. I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't really get into it. But as you mentioned, O.J., after the acquittal, he was very public. He was out there doing all kinds of things. And I think those people who thought he was guilty and that he had a uh, got a free pass, uh, it, it, it just annoyed people 
that uh, he was living the good life uh, at the expense possibly of, uh, of killing a couple of people. But I'm wondering, O.J. had the so-called dream team, and he, of course, had the resources to, uh, I guess, to afford that dream team. So uh, do we have two levels of justice uh you know, the wealthy who can afford the attorneys and the investigators and, and so forth to uh, to mount a defense versus the average Joe who gets a public defender and may be very limited in, uh, in their resources. So do the wealthy tend to be able to get away with things that most of us couldn't? Oh, yeah, there's probably a lot of truth in that. Um, I, I do... Yes, I, I do think that when you have money, you can get the experts, you can get the best, you know, attorneys who are not going to leave any stone unturned. I don't want to denigrate public defenders. I've seen some great public defenders, but you are right when you say they just don't have the resources. They don't have the budgets to um, to handle just a few cases at a time, so they have uh, they're uh, they're overloaded. Although I don't know that that's necessarily the case now, only because crime is down, at least in a lot of the metropolitan areas, Chicago um, excluded. But uh, New York, for sure, crime is a fraction of what it was when I was um, prosecuting. Uh, but I'm assuming public defenders reduce their stabs as a result as well. So they have limited resources. They can apply to the court, though, when they have indigent defendants. And in order to even be a public defender of, you know, of, or to represent someone, the person has to qualify. So they have to be um, indigent or have very, very uh, humble means. So, you know, the taxpayers will pay for, the court will appoint and uh, or allow resource, allocate resources for some experts, but it's never enough. So the system is not balanced. That's, it's just a fact. But I have seen families scrape together money to hire retur- attorneys, and they just, you know, they, they don't know, they don't, they don't know how to evaluate the attorneys they're hiring, so sometimes they don't get the best representation even when they retain an attorney. So... I do, I do think there's unfairness, there's imbalance, but, I, you know, my heart goes out to people who don't pick the right lawyers as well. You know, I, and I, I, my heart goes out to victims all the time, and sometimes there are wrongful convictions, and my heart goes out to them too, those who are wrongfully convicted, because when somebody who DNA proves, you know, is exonerated, that means the real perpetrators out there. I I imagine that uh, technically the uh, the Brown Simpson uh, murders there are, are still an open case. I mean nobody was ever convicted, and you really never close a homicide. So, Correct. Right. Yeah, you know, I'm sure it's inactive. I don't imagine anybody's doing much as far as investigation. Um, the other case that I was really interested in, and this goes into the uh, the people who rose to. Uh, Infamy, perhaps, is the, is the best word. I'm thinking of uh, Casey Anthony. Um, I, I know that uh, as I listened and, and read about what she did, the lies, I mean, just, just incredible. And um, I, I became uh, very anti-Casey. Uh, and, you know, I followed it every day when they, when they finally got to trial. 
But uh, unlike Simpson, now Simpson got acquitted and he he remained out there, as you mentioned, getting in trouble and ending up getting a conviction for the robbery. Casey Anthony, I, I, as far as I know, is pretty much dropped out of sight. She did just about the opposite, uh, don't you think? Well, yeah, yes, but O.J. Simpson was a celebrity before his trial, so he still had a big following uh, even after he was acquitted. So he, he could, you know, still what you know be out there in the community, though he was ostracized in the clubs he belonged to. I mean, he was he, he, he moved. He moved to Florida. Uh, and I, I think in large part because of the, the civil case that was uh, coming in the judgment against him because Florida is one of the states that has a Homestead Act where your house can't be seized in a civil judgment. Um, so that was uh, prudent of him to move there. Of course, he got in trouble again in the road rage case, which I, um, which I covered in 2001. Uh, but um, I don't know, where, where, where are we going with that? We were talking Question. about Casey Anthony, uh, just that she she apparently chose not to be in the oh, limelight. Oh yeah, Casey, she... cause my thought was going, my my I was going back in time to OJ and my experiences <laughs> with him. But Casey, um, Casey was reviled. The community really rejected her, and she had threats. Uh, that's my understanding, like death threats, and and so she was really protected by her attorney. She now lives with um, an investigator. I don't know if they're in a relationship. I know she she lives with Pat McKenna. Um, that's the latest I heard, and so she's still in the Florida area. Uh, I know she had wanted to start a photography business at one point. I don't know if she did. She did give an interview to an AP reporter because she was at a like a demonstration in Mar-a-Lago or somewhere, an anti-Trump, you know, demonstration, and this AP reporter had this sort of impromptu uh, interview with her. Um, so that made some news about a year ago or so. But for the most part, she dropped off the radar, although she seems to be coming back a little bit. You know, as people, as memories fade a little bit and the, a new generation grows up, I mean, she's just going to be a memory. Yeah, that's that's right. As uh, as you do get the new generation, you, you know, if you talk to some of these people and you mention Casey Anthony, you say, "Well, who's who's she?" They don't, you know, never right. never never heard of the case, or or the name just doesn't uh, resonate with them. You mentioned uh, we talked a little bit about public defenders and and people who don't have the resources uh, for attorneys. It, uh, because of our audience, I think uh, I'm going to go a little far afield here, but I want to ask you um, if a if a person believes that the police investigation into the death, death of their loved one was not adequate, that uh, perhaps it was botched or uh, laziness or incompetence, what have you, and they decide they want to possibly file a wrongful death civil suit uh, such as they did in the OJ case uh, uh, after he was acquitted in the criminal trial. Uh, I My experience has been in talking to some of these families is that if they do decide to go that route, it can be very expensive. In other words, a lot of the uh, defendants or uh, accused perpetrators um, are indigent themselves. There's, there's not a big chance of getting any kind of a substantial financial uh, reward. And it's very, very difficult uh, in a lot of cases for, for them to pursue. Some people have spent thousands of dollars 
uh, they tell me initially on attorneys and when the attorney keeps coming back for more, well, we got to do this, we got to do that, this is going to cost that, it's going to be X number of more hours. They just flat run out of money, and and they have to uh, abandon the the case. Uh, do, do you think that uh, in in those cases, is, are you aware of any other remedy they might have uh, if if they don't have the financial resources to pursue uh, possible civil action? Well, they can always get their story out there or, or try to and get it out in the public domain and have somebody like you or me or another journalist or a writer tell the story just so that the, all their efforts aren't in vain. Now, I do have people who fit that profile uh, come to me and say, you know, is there anything you can do? Can you investigate this? I know public, uh, I mean, private investigators who get cases like that where there's dissatisfaction with what law enforcement did or the inaction on the part of law enforcement. So, uh, you know, having a private investigator look into the case, um, if you haven't filed a civil suit yet, is is good. Uh, I, I, I would caution people, I mean, I can't give legal advice, but I would caution people to, you know, shop around and talk to some civil attorneys if they're contemplating it to see, uh, you know, get a couple opinions, two or three, uh, to see what the attorneys say about the likelihood of prevailing and see if you can lock them into a certain amount of money or taking a percentage, you know, pay some expenses but take a percentage of a judgment but it is kind of an exercise in futility if you have a pretty judgment-proof person. Uh, So, you know, you have to think about, you know, your money and how much money you're willing to spend um, on something that may bring no return. Then again, some people just want to exact, you know, responsibility, liability at whatever cost, just they want a finding by a court or a jury of liability like the um the Goldman family in O. J. Simpson's murder case. Bonnie Lee Bakley's family in Robert Blake's case. He too was found not guilty of murdering his wife. So I would say, you know, as a last resort, see if you can just get the story told so that it will live on. Um and that you might get some groundswell of support in the public, even if there's no more legal remedy. I mean, it's very frustrating because these cases come to me, um, and and sometimes there's just nothing more you can do. Sometimes, you know, if a statute of limitations hasn't expired, you know, maybe you go to the attorney general if the local um, district attorney or police haven't done anything, you know, try to try another law enforcement agency that has concurrent jurisdiction, but it really depends on the facts of each case. You know, what I found is uh, with trying to get another agency involved, uh, there's a lot of political correctness. Uh, in other words, let's take, say, a county case, a county sheriff's uh, department is investigating and for whatever reason, it, it appears they haven't done anything. Um, the family then contacts the state police, the, the next level up, and the, the state police response generally is, well, uh, if they want to invite us in and ask for our assistance, otherwise we can't we can't get involved. That's right. That's right. Uh, 
again, as you say, frustration. Um, the other thing, we talked about statute of limitations for civil actions. Um, in a lot of the states, it appears it's a two-year uh, two year deal. And I just uh, recently spoke with a fellow named Larry Young from Illinois, and his daughter died of a gunshot wound to the head. It's still uh, apparently an undetermined uh, manner of death. And what he did, he, he, he found out he missed the statute of limitations for wrongful death by just a few days. But he went to uh, one of his state assembly people or state legislators, and they ended up passing what they called Molly's Law. Uh, the, his, Larry's daughter's name was Molly. And in certain cases of violent death, they extended the, uh, the statute of limitations for filing wrongful death from two years to five years. And they also, they had companion legislation which uh, addressed FOIA issues because Larry said he couldn't file anything. He didn't have any records. And he was in a battle with the state police to release records of the, uh, of the case. Uh, so he would have the ammunition or the uh, sufficient knowledge to go with the civil suit. And what, they, what they've done as, as part of that companion legislation, if a governmental agency in Illinois refuses or declines a FOIA request, the onus is now on that agency to prove why in, – in, in, Generally, in cases, it's the open case exemption, that, that, that kind of a standard thing. And to prove that the case is not only open, but it's active, uh, which uh, puts the burden on, on the governmental agency. And in fact, uh, there's a two-year statute here in New York, and uh, I've contacted a legislator, uh, state legislator to try to see if there'd be any interest here in doing something like that. Um, well, I think a kudos to Molly's father in Illinois for um, causing the law to be changed. Do you happen to know whether or not it's, it's retroactive so that he can now still file, or is it still too late for him? It's still too late for him. So the, he went ahead with it. Uh, he had to put a lot of time and effort, uh, of course, into getting this done. Um so he he was aware from the uh, apparently the legislative people he was dealing with that they wouldn't be able to get it retroactive. But mm -hmm. he decided that so many people, uh, you know, are victimized, if you will, by by the statute being short, um, that he went ahead with it anyway, looking for people who hopefully would help people in the future to, uh, That's to great. have another and rem remedy. And also that they're um, that they've created what sounds like almost a statutory presumption, presumption that the records have to be turned over unless the police department can prove it's an open and active, not just open and where it can, it's sitting on a shelf somewhere collecting dust, but active. Um, so that's that's really great. That's something that you know other similarly situated people who are frustrated by the system could do in other states. I think that's great. You said you uh, spoke to someone about changing the law in New York? I sent uh, I, I sent an email to the, the assembly woman, 
who had, I'm, I've been working on a cold case for the past eight years now. Uh, and that prompted me because the person I'm representing uh, was in the same boat as, as Larry Young as far as the uh, statute of limitations being mm-hmm. passed. So I've... Uh, I've sent an email to the assembly woman uh, ask, you know, explaining what happened in Illinois and uh, sent her a link to all the information and the, and the actual uh, statute. And uh, I'm waiting to hear back from her. I just sent it. So hopefully, you know, I'll get some response and I, I'll be able to generate some interest. That's great. Good. Okay. I didn't mean to get uh, too far off base here. <laughs> So we can uh, we can get back to uh, the, the celebrities and so on. Uh, Delilah. Yes. <laughs> I was, you Did know, you, one you, of the things that went through my mind as you were explaining all of this and just talking about it, you know, when we talk about a dream team, um, you know, of course, I feel like that is for the wealthy. Most of us cannot afford a dream team. However, if you if you were in a situation where you were taking your case as far as you could take it, what sort of a low low cost dream team would you suggest putting together? Uh, well, first of all, if you have money, right? If you say if you're going to put together a dream team and 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 you don't have to rely on public defenders and you've got you've got a pot of money to use, uh, right? Whether you know you may be mortgaging your property, you may be doing something to to create you know a couple hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it depends on your community. Lawyers who are going to charge more in, in uh, a, a big urban area as opposed to you know, a more rural area. So it's really hard for me to answer that question. But I would say to um, in evaluating your case, determine what kind of experts may be needed. Are you going to need? Um, a DNA expert or a reconstruction expert, you know, you you want to know, I mean, you're talking about somebody who's defending themselves, right, not a prosecutor, not somebody who's prosecuting, but um, you want to kind of know what the prosecution's case is and who they may call, and that is available to the defense, and then decide if you can't afford one or two experts, because that's a big factor in a budget, and then see if you can afford two lawyers or a lawyer and you know, maybe a law student or paralegal to the lawyer, an assistant to to help. But you want to make sure that you can, if you can counter some of the expert testimony. I mean, I've covered cases where the defense could have done a lot more, but they just didn't have the money, and they were retained lawyers, and they just or they just didn't know enough. Uh, so you also want to look at the experience that the attorneys have had. You can check them out. You know, there are sites online. You can call the local bar. You can find out um, about the background of the lawyer, if there have been any complaints, grievances against the lawyer. Uh, talk to people in the community um, for recommendations of lawyers. Just because a lawyer is on TV and is a talking head on TV doesn't mean that lawyer is necessarily good in the courtroom. All right, so you really want to you want to do your homework on who the good trial lawyers are. I mean, that's some of the advice I would give off the top of my head. I'll probably come up with more ideas once we hang up, but that's a start. And you and you mentioned most people in that situation would would 
most likely have to mortgage property or or find mm-hmm. funding in some way to be able to mm-hmm. put this type of a of a team together what what is your what are your thoughts on private investigators you know a lot of private investigators are fabulous um many are retired law enforcement some aren't um but are just like great just great investigators. So I'm uh, I'm a big supporter of private investigators, but like lawyers, like police officers, not everybody's created equally. So just because somebody has a PI license doesn't mean he or she is going to be a great investigator. So you want to like, do your homework, find out who clients are, see if you can speak to somebody who has been um, represented by this person in the past or this person's hired in the past to see what the um, you know satisfaction level is. But I, uh, I'm all for it. I mean, journalists are investigators too, right? I mean, many journalists are investigative journalists. And while a journalist can't necessarily go into the same territories as a licensed private investigator, it's not, you know, some of the work I do is not unlike what a private investigator does. So I, um, you know, I've, I've had good experiences in dealing with PIs. Well, and, and speaking of, of investigative journalists like yourself, how difficult is it for someone just in the general public to bring their case to the media? Where where should you start? If you're bringing your case to the media, where do you want to start and where do you expect it to go? Well, I find that um, people will use all kinds of resources. I, they, I get contacted because somebody has, has seen me on TV or they may know me from the past, or they've seen me on one of the investigation discovery shows. I'm in their American Murder Mystery series a lot. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, and I have a website, BethKaris.com, so they'll contact me through that. Or, you know, I'm on Dr. Oz doing some legal analysis. So that's one place, you know, look for some legal eagles on TV. Also, just do um, Google searches uh, for, you know, legal journalists. I don't. I mean, I know some of my colleagues will get some of the same letters I get, but I know that people come to me in part because I'm not just a journalist, but I'm a licensed attorney and a former prosecutor, and I've been around a long time, and I've been on, you know, I practice law as well as um, investigated as a journalist. So there are other people who fit my profile, but there aren't a lot of people who really dedicate their time to doing what I do. They may have like full-time TV jobs or they just don't have don't have the time. So I would recommend, you know, googling re- when you read articles and you see people quoted or maybe an article written by someone who follows crime a lot, you know, write to these people. We often have either Twitter handles or emails out there contact information. And we're always looking for new stories and, and tips as well. Well, what what would catch your attention? I, I know you must get bombarded with a lot of different requests. What? Yeah, what, you know, I try to. I'll tell you about one I just got, but um, I I try to respond to all of them, and I can't give everybody the the same level of attention. But I actually do end up um, communicating with a lot of people by email, sometimes phone, sometimes in prisons. Uh, but I got a I got a packet the other day at my business address, and um, I I thought oh the name looked familiar, and I thought oh it's probably you know it was from a prison, and I thought oh somebody must claim they're wrongfully convicted. They're not always wrongfully convicted, but sometimes they really are, and I I take a look at them, and sometimes I pass them off. 
to other people as well. And I'll call, you know, some contacts I have at other magazines and newspapers to say, look, I don't have the time. Is this something you can look into? So I get this packet a couple weeks ago, and I finally I open it up and I start reading it. And I'm like, oh, my God. Do you remember when there were two two escapees from an upstate prison in New York? Yes. And they were on yes. the land for a long time, and then they found it was a big manhunt, and one got killed. So it was the survivor guy, David Sweat was his name. So he writes, sends me this huge packet, and he's got this fiancé, and I've got her contact information. I haven't done anything with it. But he's, right now he is on a hunger strike, and he claims that uh, – the guards are going to kill him, or he fears for his life. He fears his food's going to be poisoned. He said he sees a lot of abuse by the Department of Corrections, well, the guards, uh, where he is, um, that they, you know, just, well, urinate in the food or defecate in a sandwich and give it to an inmate and, you know, stuff like that, he says, is going on. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but I don't think a lot of it's wrong. It shouldn't be happening, but I don't think a lot of people have any sympathy for David Sweat, who's in prison for murder and, you know, escaped and um, and, his, and his, you know, co-escapee was shot by uh, by the police. So anyway, that, I got that in the mail. So I get all kinds of stuff. Uh, Beth, do you, do you get uh, uh, people who who allege that their loved one's death was ruled as a suicide, but they are convinced that it was not yes. suicide. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, that that seems like almost an epidemic. Uh, an accident or a suicide, ruled an accident or a suicide. I know there was one case in, in Georgia that just jumps out at me as you say that, but I, I, I sent that on to, um, to a PI down there because I couldn't um, – I couldn't work on it from here. But, yes, that is very troubling. You know, the, the cases that I've always found fascinating when I was covering cases regularly were the ones where man or a death was an issue, right? Was it an accident or murder? Was it suicide or murder? And, you know, that, that was an issue in Phil Spector's trial, right, the music producer who put a gun in a woman's mouth, and he says, well, she actually shot herself. You know, she killed herself, and he was convicted of murder in his second trial. It was a hung jury the first time. And and so accident or suicide, uh, accident or murder, um, are always interesting. But when the police reach a conclusion that doesn't satisfy the family, because the family knows their loved one better than anyone and knows that this would not have been an accident or would not have been a suicide, it's really tr- it's troubling, especially if it's a small police department that doesn't investigate a lot of homicides and may have overlooked really key information. So um, I, I do see a fair number of those and, um, you know, will help in any way I can myself or referring it to somebody else. What do you do with them? People who contact me or, or contact uh, the group, uh, I tell them we can't do a lot unless I know on what basis you've decided or feel that this was not a suicide or an accident and that I can't do a whole lot if it's just a gut feeling. Uh, I'd, I'd like to have something more than that. So uh, some people are not very happy with that, but, uh, you know, I, I really need something with some teeth a little bit, to, to something to justify uh, moving forward. So uh, when, when people have, uh, and they have, uh, let me say probable cause uh, to believe that uh, that the death was in fact uh, a homicide. Um, 
we pursue it, I uh, will often refer them on, as, as you apparently sometimes do. Um, we will uh, have them guest on one of our broadcasts, uh, and they can, as, as you mentioned earlier in response to Delilah's question about the victims, um, we always uh, allow them to start the broadcast uh, describing their loved one. Uh, what type of what type of person? Uh, what was going on in their life at the time of their death? Uh, what were their plans for the future? All, all those types of things, and then we'll get into the uh, the evidence or the the, the reason the, the the person believes that the death was in fact a homicide. And on occasion, not certainly not as often as we would like, we do get. Uh, uh, the people will, will contact us with with information, uh, that, you know, that they believe may have been overlooked by the police or that type of thing that we can pass on. So it's uh, but it's very frustrating uh, to hear some of the stories where where the investigation was so uh, almost non-existent. And right, I I understand. I agree. I think your um your advice is great at the outset. You know, give me something more than just a hunch or a gut feeling because, you know, a gut feeling is not probable cause and it's certainly not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And just because you have probable cause to arrest someone, I mean, the leap from PC to proof beyond a reasonable doubt is pretty big. Uh so you know, as a prosecutor, you don't take a case unless you feel that you can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's tough. And sometimes, you know, sometimes people get, yeah, they get away with crime. I've said a lot of times over the years, you know, apparently crime pays because it just keeps happening over and over again. I, I just don't understand how these husbands can keep killing their wives. Enough of them must get away with it. It just happens. They just keep doing it. Yeah, it it apparently is something like you say just never ends. Uh, Any time you open the paper or turn turn on the TV news or something, there's another one. And uh, you know, locally or if it's one of these, as we're saying, high profile or celebrity type deals, obviously that gets uh, national attention. But um, back uh, Delilah asked a few minutes ago about trying to get the publicity for a case. Uh, to keep it in the public eye or get it in the public eye. And what I found is uh, if if it's just a local case, if it's not the celebrity thing or there's not any real uh, other factors like a sex angle or that type of thing, uh, a local reporter, uh, whether it's TV or print, is sometimes reluctant to do much because if, if if you're going to be questioning the investigation, the quality of the investigation, they rely on that police agency for other stories That's and right. for information and that type of thing. So they're very reluctant to do much that's negative. Mm-hmm. And and then, like you say, and, and Delilah mentioned, then you obviously have to try to go above that, maybe get out of the local media into uh, as you said, you know, watch the TV, look for an investigative uh, journalist or investigative reporter, and that's not 
uh, in debt to the to the police mm-hmm. agencies in question and, and try to get them interested. Uh, you mentioned that you just received this huge packet from the uh, from the killer there. Uh, David Sweat. Or Sweat. Yeah. David Sweat. Uh, what what do you like to see in the way of a I want to call it a submission or, or a request? Do you like to see like a synopsis, something that you can go to with yeah. just the highlights? Or? Mm-hmm. I'd like to see a synopsis. I like any records they may have. If they do have any police uh, reports or autopsy reports, I'll often ask for that. And certainly, I want contact information. I want to know how to reach you. Uh, that's uh, you know almost always given, but um, I you know I, I need that. But I don't. The more I can read, the better, um, although I, I want something that that's a synopsis uh, in the beginning to make sure that it's something that I, I can really sink my teeth into. But I, I got um, a lot of stuff recently out of North Carolina. Initially, it was a very, very good um, email, very articulate, and then I just kept asking for more. I've now been in touch with the lawyers, and so I'm, I'm just looking into uh, a homicide down there. But... A synopsis and any records, autopsy report, police reports, and then contact information. You agree? Isn't yeah, that the, what you like too? Yeah, that's uh, yeah. If I, if I get deluged with you know fifty pages of stuff initially, um, I, I I don't know. It's kind of a turnoff for me. I, I like something that's the highlights, the synopsis, telling me what it is, why they think it is, and what they have to, in the way of support or evidence for, uh, mm-hmm. to support their contention. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, if it looks like something I can help with, uh, I can, as you do, I would then, you know, get in touch and, and ask for more information and, uh, you know, maybe develop uh, some kind of a, an investigative plan or, or how to proceed. Um, but yeah, I, I sometimes get people that just send me, it's just almost overwhelming. So I, I prefer the, uh, synopsis, the highlights and the, you know, some supporting information. And it, as you said, of course, the contact info. Right. The, how, going... how, how long? Go ahead, Denny. Uh, I was just going to say, how how long, Beth, with, with the number of requests that you get, what what uh, what is your turnaround time if somebody sends you uh, a request, regardless of how lengthy or how how short? Um, about how long does it take you to go through all this stuff and then make some kind of decision and respond? Well, it really depends on what else I'm doing because I was doing a uh, you know project down in Mississippi. With uh, what you mentioned in the introduction with the documentary film group that's going to air in a six-part series on oxygen later this year. And so that set everything behind. But it can be anywhere from uh, one day to uh, three weeks, depending on, you know, where I am in, you know, with other projects. I try to get back to people, you know, as soon as I can. That, and and I have good. things that are pending. Like I don't, I don't like say no right out of the box for sure. You know, I really try. Sure, sure. Um, that's good because I know, and I, I try to be fairly prompt also. And I think if if you're the requester, 
and you're in this situation, uh, maybe you know, grief involved, maybe some anger involved, and a lot of emotion, uh, waiting, waiting for things is, is very difficult. Yeah. Uh, it, and when when people, whether it's a police agency, whether it's a lawyer, whatever, whoever it happens to be, and you got to wait and wait and wait and, and then do follow-up calls or follow-up emails, and uh, it, it gets very frustrating. And I understand that people in that situation uh, can be short-tempered sometimes if they feel they're being ignored. Yes, um, that's that's right. I mean, I've been the requester and I'm also the one people are waiting for, so I understand. I'm on both <laughs> sides, for sure. And do you know, uh, it's also been uh, my experience, and I think Delilah will agree, that a lot of the times the police agency or governmental agency, the coroner's office, what, what, whatever it happens to be, uh, don't have a good uh, PR set up. Uh, they don't return phone calls. They they don't uh, respond. They they don't answer emails. Or if they do, it's well, I'll get back to you, and then you never hear from them. Uh, uh, you I, know, would, I would. I would. Oh, my my experience is not that. It's very few who actually don't ever get back. But when I make the initial contact, I always say, "Who should I? I, have, I have a, I'm a journalist. I have a request. Who should I be talking to?" Where should I direct it? So first thing out of my mouth, whoever answers the phone. And they usually pass me off to, you know, the person who's supposed to take the media inquiries. So I don't know. I haven't had – maybe I haven't done it as much as you. So my experience is less is limited. Well, I, I think uh, I'm coming more at it from the, from the family, not from uh, – like, like, you know, you have the uh, – ah. the, 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 recognition and the and so forth that uh, but if so and so's sister calls up wants to know about her brother's death investigation uh, uh, I hear time after time that there's uh, difficulties there that the detectives then will say get off my back you're driving me nuts I'll call you when I get something uh well, that's an insensitive comment. If if that's you know if anyone ever says actually uses those words, and all the detectives are some are going to be more sensitive than others. I you know I know of detectives who uh, will will be in regular contact with the family because they're really em- empathetic, but they can't divulge too much, right? In an active investigation, they just have to play their cards close to their vest. So. There's a way to do it, though, to, to still give attention to the family without divulging too much. And so I feel bad for those family members who are, are feeling, you know, mistreated or ignored uh, or, you know, they're dealing with insensitive detectives who are probably overworked and overtired. Yes. And, uh, yeah, sensitivity, I guess, is, 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 is the issue. I, I know this uh, one case that... Uh, the detective didn't tell the mother of the deceased, but told a friend. Uh, I wish she would uh, get over it and move on. Well, how do you get over the unsolved death of your of your son? I mean, uh, uh, so I, I thought that was rather callous. But uh, it, you know, as you say, you deal with a whole bunch of different 
detective. Some are more sensitive than others. Some, uh, and some I think maybe have cases even that they're more in, into than others. You know, maybe a, 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 a particular case is they don't think is solvable or something, or they uh, they just don't are, don't they're not really into it. Mm-hmm. And then if the uh, if the family keeps calling, uh, you know, every week wanting updates and so forth, I guess they could get a little bit testy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they should step outside themselves and you know see how they sound to the to the caller, you know, to the family, and and you know try to be a little more sensitive. Yeah, yes, and it's, it's difficult. You mentioned something. Some of the smaller agencies too, you know, that have uh, very limited manpower. I know there are some, and I used to work, in fact, for a couple of them, where they didn't have really a detective division, or uh, uh, you know, you're you're subject to when you report to work to to do everything. You can act as as you know, serving civil papers or uh, uh, doing road patrol or uh, you know, whatever the need is at that time, if you're in one of these real little, uh, real small, limited resource agencies. So um, they that can be an issue, too, I think, you know, depending what agency you're dealing with and, and what their resources are and their uh, their staffing and so forth. If, you know, a case that takes on some profile in a community, it may not be a national profile, but just a community in the community, uh, you know, national cases, unless it's a celebrity at the outset, do start at the, at the local level, right? But my advice um, is for family members that may just get overwhelmed with media requests is to see if there's a, a friend of the family or somebody who can, who can act as sort of a PR person um, if they don't have resources to actually hire a PR agency. Um, just somebody to just field the requests, the calls. And that, that is um, something that happens. In, in some of these cases, and I know as a journalist that I'm dealing with a lot of these these PR people who represent the family, even if it's a family friend. Um, but sometimes, you know, families are just so caught up, and you know, in their grief or whatever, that they 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 want the attention because it keeps the story out there, and the story is getting viral, going viral, and it's getting it's becoming national. So that's good, but they also just can't, you know, they're processing too much. They need help in fielding these calls. So, you know, my advice is to get someone um, who, who can help them with that. I mean, I I can help with stuff like that, but, you know, or somebody in their community. Did Have you ever uh, had any luck or experience with advocacy groups? I'm thinking of uh, one I've dealt with quite frequently is Citizens Against Homicide. They're California-based, but they will—they're national. They will take national cases, and uh, they will a lot of times uh, help dealing with the press, as you mentioned, or act as a, uh, a representative uh, dealing with the police. Sometimes the relationship between the victim's family and the police gets strained at various points, and they will go in as. Uh, you know, on behalf of the family and, and talk to the police uh, and, and try to open communications. So have you ever uh, dealt with an, an organization dealt like that? With, no, I've dealt just with uh, PR uh, people with their own agencies, but I, I like 
hearing about this organization. I hope there are others like that so that it's not uh, – they're probably volunteers, right? I mean, it, they're not charging the family, which would be great if they're if they're not, and they're just jumping yes, to be a liaison, a, a liaison for the family, which is great. Um, gosh, yes. I hope that a lot of communities have or a lot of states have uh, an organization like that available to them. Oh. We've started a resources for survivors page, and we're listing these various organizations with links so that I can refer people to that page, and and they might uh, find somebody that can be of assistance. Great. And uh, where where is that page? It's called Resor- resourcesforsurvivors.com? Dot com. Okay. It's not a Facebook page. It's a website. Yes, it is. Good. Great. I'll send Great. you the link to it if you'd like. Good, yeah, sure. I'll put it on my site too. Okay, unfortunately, we're completely out of time. I don't know where the hour went, but it's <laughs> yeah. uh, it's gone. Uh, Beth, I want to thank you so much. It's really been very enlightening, and I know we've only scratched the surface of your knowledge. And perhaps you'd consider doing another show with us sometime. Sure, we can do it again anytime. Just let me know. Okay, well, thank you very, very much, Beth. It was a pleasure talking to you both. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.